Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. So hi, this is Ashley, and I am joined today by Selma L. Wardani. She is a writer, poet, and BBC broadcaster. As a half-Egyptian, half-Irish woman, her work focuses on telling the stories of women, especially women of color, that have so been long ignored. She joins us today on Feminist Book Club podcast to talk about these impossible things, her debut novel. Salma, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to be here. So first question that we like to ask our authors who join us is, what is your definition of feminism? Ooh, we went in hard. <laughs> there is no light questions here. Boom, <laughs> straight in the deep end. I love it. Okay. My definition of feminism is the right to choose and having the right, the opportunity and the ability to choose whatever's right for you. So if a woman wants to choose to be prime minister or president, she has the right, the ability and the opportunity to do so. If she wants to stay at home and raise 75 kids, she has the right, the ability and the opportunity to do so. Um, so for me, that's what feminism is about. Women having the right um, legislatively, the ability so the structures around them are put in place so that they can and the opportunity so that we have a more equal society so that these opportunities are offered to them and they're in spaces where they can have these opportunities that for me I think in the simplest form that's what it's about and what is these impossible things about it is a novel about three women they're all from different backgrounds cultures and they all have different stories going on, but they've been friends since they were young. They are each other's best friends. They're a unit, the three of them. They get through everything in life together, the highs, the lows, the relationships, the heartbreaks, everything. They go through everything tonight. Uh, they go through everything together until one night something happens and it sets them all adrift from one another. And the three of them go off on three very different journeys. And suddenly life looks very different when the women who have anchored you your whole life have suddenly disappeared when the women who have been your rock suddenly aren't there anymore and how the choices you make can look different and how the woman that you become can look like a different woman than the woman you could have been when your girlfriends were by your side and so it's really a love letter to female friendships it's about the power of female friendships the love of women being by each other's side and supporting one another and going through life together regardless of the men that come into their lives, the family uh, that come into their lives, their obligations, their work aspirations. This is a love letter to female friendships. And you write characters who experience disappointment as well as ambition. What do those elements bring to how we see these women? I think what I try to do in the book is write women that felt real to the women that were reading it. I wanted the women who were reading this book to be in the middle of the pages and then think, yeah, I have felt that rubbish or I've been that disappointed or I've been that let down or I've been that hurt. 
because that is the reality of women, right? And that reality gets more layered depending on the intersections that you sit at. So regardless of whether that's color, faith, culture, whatever it is, those disappointments become sharper and keener. And I think the disappointments that women of color have had to face are different to the disappointments that white women have had to face. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to include that as a reality and so that women of color could see themselves in this body of work because I grew up not seeing myself in literature and I was entrenched in literature. I was elbow deep in books. I studied it. I studied a master's in it. I read nine books a week at my library when Mm -hmm. I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I was entrenched and I still, despite reading hundreds and hundreds of books, you're telling me I still can't find myself in them. And so that was really important. And what I love most about this book is that it is an adult book. And these are adults making decisions. And these are adults who are going through things. It's not just some, you know, prickly 20 year old or you know in their early 20s who's you know oh life is so hard and it's like yes it's hard and you're you're barely understanding it um but these women go through some incredible experiences and not because they're grand but because they shape who they are and who they are to each other it was just such a powerful thing to read and then for these to be women of color just took it to another stratosphere And it is that, you know, those early 20s, they're messy. It's a messy time for women trying to figure out and trying to kind of balance their own desires and ambitions against their expectations of society, of of their cultures, of their family, of their faith communities. There's a lot to balance and these women are going through it. And when you realize that you get the space to be messy and that it's not just like you get to pick up the Swiffer and, you know, do the, mm-hmm. do the floor that is your life real quick. You know, sometimes you got to leave crumbs on the floor and you got to come right. back to it. So I, yeah, I think the sooner you realize that time of your life gets to be messy, the, the easier you allow yourself to evolve during that time. 100%, I couldn't agree more. And you have to give people the grace. You have to give women the grace to be messy and to make those mistakes. And the women in this book do, right? Mm-hmm. I, there was never ever a chance that I was going to write these paragons of virtue that were going to be above reproach like these women have faults you know you can you can read through the pages and be frustrated with them and think oh my god what are you doing yes um because they have to have space to make those mistakes because they will learn from them in the same way that you and I did and I'm sure people listening that the listeners of this podcast are nodding along probably going yep I effed up And, you know, and I learned my greatest lesson from it. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose post-college as a time for these women? We just spoke about your early 20s, but why post-college? I'm glad you asked that because that was really intentional. And I played around with the time period that I could set this in. But I wanted to set it post-college because that for me straddles the line when you are living at home or sometimes living at home and then you go out into the world and suddenly you're your own person when we're all in college we genuinely thought we were grown we all thought we were adults we were like yes look here I am I go to classes every day and I you know I've got a part-time job I am a fully sufficient independent person what a load of bs and I remember leaving 
college and then going out into the world and getting my first job and then the stark reality that I was not in the real world that I was still in a very protected bubble um and now if the rent man came knocking and you know the bills piled up that was on me and me alone and you know I wasn't going to be able to just stay at my mom and dad's and you know there was not going to be a student loan to help me or whatever that might be and so for me I wanted to straddle that time when they have a foot in their home lives quite firmly and when they are then transitioning and they have then lives outside of the family home and I wanted to do that because I really wanted to explore family in this book and I wanted to explore the obligations and the expectations that family place upon you and how family can really break your heart that they can be the people that you love the most and that love you the most but they will break your heart worse than any heartbreak that you you come along in your romantic relationships and I felt like it does change and I'm sure lots of lots of people and I'm sure you know this but the kind of relationship that you have with your family does change when you are no longer living under your family's roof there is a natural change to that um and I wanted there still to be I wanted this this story to still have them under their family's roof for a very short period of time to then fully be able to explore how difficult family can be but how beautiful it can be and how the idea that someone says you should give everything up for love and maybe love isn't worth it because maybe you'd rather have all your family instead of this one person Mm -hmm. and why should you trade it all in and so that's why I said it at that time period and you, it's just such a nice contrast with the characters as friends and your idea of chosen family and then your actual family and how you learn from both and there's complications, but it's endearing. Yeah. And you know what? That chosen family is so important because the chosen family helps us through the things that we're dealing with with our family in so many instances. They keep us saying, I mean, God bless my chosen family. With- yes. Without them, I would have lost the plot many years ago, mainly in frustration at my own blood family. Mm-hmm. So tra- there, there is a scene where there's like a tradition of brunch between two characters and their mother, no matter what is going on in their lives, they sit down and they eat breakfast. I believe it was, it was the Saturday, like a Saturday morning. I mean, like a Sunday, a Sunday yeah. brunch, like so- every week. Okay, so you have this moment. How did you want pace to drive these simple moments that are also peppered during the book? How did pace drive um, the narrative for this, for the story? Yeah, I think, um, and it's hard, isn't it? Because I mean, any writer will tell you it's hard because there's so much that you want to put in and then some bits are slower and then suddenly everything happens all at once. And then you're like, wait, no, this has to drive it. But for me, a lot of those, Um, family moments that you spoke about like that brunch that one of the characters has regardless of what's going on every Sunday they come together for brunch with the family I wanted those to be paced heavily at the beginning because I wanted that to be the introduction I wanted people to open this book and understand that these were not women who were warring with their families sure they've got frustrations and sure they get annoyed at their families but they're not trying to disown them they're not warring with them they don't hate them they are trying to figure out how they bloom into adulthood fully and into their own womanhood whilst also managing the idea that their family have of them and who they are and who they're going to be and what they're going to do which every single family has and I just wanted to set up because I think there's a really lazy and easy assumption for people to make that certain families from certain cultures and certain 
faith communities are oppressive mm-hmm. and that there is an idea that the, the women in these families need saved mm-hmm. somehow. And I was adamantly against that because that's not true. That's just a negative stereotype. And so I really wanted to set, set the pace of that narrative from the very beginning that these were families that were deeply tied to one another and loved each other very much and enjoyed spending time with one another regardless of all the nuances and the complexities that every single family holds. And that's such a beautiful representation of culture, especially that is so frankly demonized Um, Mm. and um, just just not the the representation in society is not the representation in these families. And you do that so beautifully in the book Mm. to just ground that these are people who eat pancakes and have faith and have worship and community, just as the person who has their faith in their family. You know, we like pancakes. Let's enjoy Drink them with our families, you know? hundred percent. Yeah. And it's, and that's exactly, I think you've touched on a really important point. I wanted people, regardless of their faith and their culture and the color of their skin, to see themselves in this and go, oh yeah, like my family does that too. That's just a really normal mundane family thing that happens so religion sex and culture are integral to the characters what societal conversations and I guess this touched upon what you were just speaking of what societal conversations should we be having and how do you do so in the novel I guess continuing on from the last answer yeah oh god that's a big question isn't it well we're in desperate need of a lot of conversations that we're not having when it comes to sex, religion, faith, culture. We've done a really good job for so many decades of just brushing those things under the carpet because actually it's difficult to deal with them. And it is difficult, right? Like faith communities never want to discuss modernity and faith. Mm -hmm. They don't want to roll up their sleeves and get into the messy business of how do we navigate this modern world with our religion that we believe in and our traditional beliefs and how do those two things fit together historically what we've done is go you're a sinner and you don't fit with this because you did that outside of the faith and so therefore we're going to push you outside of the church or the synagogue or the mosque because that's the easy option right no one you know it's easy to go well you had sex outside of marriage so you are not of this community you do not believe you did not follow the book you do not belong. That's that's the easy way out. It is harder to sit down and say, tell me why you did that. Tell me how I could have been better in this community to support you in that relationship with that person that you love. What should we have done differently so that you felt that you could um, be open and honest about what was going on and you didn't have to step outside the bounds of faith? What could we have done better to support you in that? You know, no one wants to have that conversation. No one wants to sit down and detangle centuries of theology to figure out what is appropriate for modern day living. Because yes, we can say, you know, we follow the scripture, we follow the Quran or the Torah, whatever it is. And we can say, well, it was, you know, prescribed all of those decades ago and we have to follow it exactly that way. But the reality is it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way because everything changes and we can't change with the times, but then adamantly stick in this yes. solid ground when it comes to faith. Um, so, you know, we've, we've done a really good job all of these decades of not talking about faith and sex and all of those things that are really important. And 
we we need to have these conversations. And you know, part of this book was let's rip it wide open. Let's just completely rip the bandaid off. And I'm so cognizant of the fact that there will be Muslims reading this book who are deeply annoyed at the things that I write and who aren't happy that I have said these things go on and that it's not true. And you know, fine, that's that's your truth, sure. But also, where is that coming from? It's coming from a place of frustration or anger or the fact that, you know, we should have been having these conversations. And so, you know, this book is about starting those conversations. You can be, be pissed off and annoyed that I'm having them now, but we're going to have them. One way or another, we are going to have them. There's a conversation between Jenna and her mother towards the end of the book that almost made me cry because it's such a it's such a wave that meets the shore mm. of how they have this relationship and this honesty between them after a moment of clarity mm. that is just oh it was so beautiful to read and it's a brief moment towards the end of the book but getting to there as you started in the beginning of the book, you know, these are families who have brunched together and everything. You get to enjoy what happens towards the end of the book of how these families come together. And, you know, religion is such a marred part of society because we're not evolving and we're not mm -hmm. having these conversations. And that's across faiths. So mm -hmm. to be so for you to say, you know what, we're not going to rip the bandaid, but we you know, it's not going to be painful, but we are going to sit and we are going to inch by inch take off the bandaid because we need to start healing in other ways of how we are in society. A hundred percent. And do you know what's the most heartbreaking thing about this entire uh thing that we now have of brushing everything under the carpet or the thing that we've always been doing the most heartbreaking thing about it is that actually when we find the time to sit down and talk to one another and have those moments of clarity and be honest no one is as outraged and upset and as hurt as we think they were going to be actually those people in your community in your faith community in your family love you and they will wrap an arm around you yes. and that's the heartbreaking thing and I just it it kills me how many hearts have been broken or how many women have refused their desires and their wants and the things and their ambitions and the things that they wanted from this life because they felt like it was not fitting and that they would be pushed out and they would be disowned and they would be, when the reality is most of the time, if you can be honest and you can have those conversations, you can all move forward together. That's the heartbreaking thing. All the things that we don't say to one another that had we just said out loud, there would have been less heartbroken, there would have been less broken hearts on the floor. You're a fantastic presence on Instagram. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I talk a lot of, you know, just me you, shouting into the just, ether. <laughs> just as the conversations that you have in this book, you are illuminating on your own platform and you do have a platform. You could be talking about broccoli and you can bring it back to the patriarchy and white, <laughs> and white mediocre men. And maybe because their hair looks like a broccoli top, but you know, so there's some, Good one. <laughs> there's some semblance to it. But what I, uh, what I love is that you are honest more than vulnerable. You're honest, you're willing to have the conversations and you build community through it. How did you 
build that community or how are you building that community in sharing your experiences? And what do you imagine a world that isn't just of white mediocre men? Oh, I dream about it all the time. Um, and thank you for those very kind words. That's really kind of you to say that about, about my platform and the things that I talk about on there. I, the first part, in answer to the, to the first part of your question, I have built that exactly as you said, by being radically honest. And I appreciate that I am someone who doesn't have a filter. You know, I, I am quite uncensored and I say the things that I think. And I have done that my whole life. And that's for a, a variety of reasons. And I have always come out with what was in my head. And I think so many women want to do that. And so many women police and self-censor themselves. And so to see someone being so radically honest is refreshing. And I think that's why we're all drawn to one another, that level of radical honesty that we have on my platform, which is stunning because when I share something, if I sit there and say to you, I had this experience in my workplace and I had a tricky uh, interaction with this white man and he was feeling threatened by me. And so he's trying to intimidate me. And actually, I just told him to F off, right? Mm -hmm. And oh, I did. Women then feel seen and they go, I've had that happen to me too. And I keep getting told that I'm intimidating or that they don't like my tone or whatever it might be. When I talk about previous abuse and trauma that I've suffered, women will then go, me too. Mm -hmm. When you are honest in that way, really radically honest, not is this a good video for the algorithm? Will this get likes? Right. When you just put your full self out there, it's like a pressure valve has been released for other women. And suddenly we all get to breathe a little better. I know that when I come across women online who are being radically honest, I feel better and I can breathe better. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, okay, it's okay. We can all bring our truth to this. We can continue to be in this truthful space with one another. I don't feel so alone. I feel like I am in an army of sisterhood. And they are all by my side. And so I'm constantly just trying to relieve that, that pressure. And I think that's what being honest does. And a world that wasn't just full of mediocre white men. Oh, well, that's utopia, I think. <laughs> and which is not, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, there would still be problems and yes. things would be different. Of course. Yes. But just imagine for a second, imagine all of the mediocre white men that are in positions of power, whether that's in government, the White House, Parliament, uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, headmasters of schools, local councillors. Think about all of those men. And let's say we could snap our fingers and replace them with women. Life would look so different. Yes. All you have to do is look at the statistics of women-led countries in yes. the pandemic and their death rates and how they handled the pandemic to know that women should be leading the world, right? If you had women, if it was only women who, who ruled countries, we wouldn't even have armies because killing one another is just not a natural conflict resolution for us. Right. We wouldn't be like, oh, this is how we resolve this conflict with one another. Um, so I, I envisage this world where women are in places of opportunity and power and responsibility in all spheres and industries and sectors. And the world is a softer place. It is, which is, and that's not me saying women are all soft and mm -hmm. nurturing and kind. No, lots of women are hard-nosed, tough, problematic, 100%, yes. right? But we resolve things in different ways and we approach things in different ways. I'm not saying there's not, you know, um, 
internal misogyny. Of course, there are all those things. But if you have this, this sea change and you have more women in positions of power that all those mediocre white men uh, currently occupy, the world becomes a better place. It becomes a softer place. And also men become better because men have to, because they are held to different standards, because they are not the dominant in power. And so therefore they cannot get away with all that they get away with today. The, the, everyone becomes better. We become our better selves. I'm a better woman today because of the women I've had around me. Yes. I owe them my success. And I know that if, if, if the world changed like that, then men would be better, women would be better, non-binary people would be, everyone would just be elevated. I believe that to my core. And that's so powerful because I think even just saying like white mediocre men also diminishes that anyone can be um, be in the place of keeping us from what we dream of and from what we see and from all of us evolving. So like if we could snap our fingers and all of those men were out of those positions, as you said, and they could step back and see what real leadership looks like and how there are moments of failure and, but we get to evolve and we get to try again and we get to do better. Oh, yeah. And you know what the, the thing is as well is the patriarchy, as we all know, is a massive disservice to men as well. Yes. And so you have media, we call mediocre white men in these positions who are not, entering any level of greatness and they're not challenging themselves to greatness and they're not aspiring to greatness and they don't get to elevate and grow themselves because they have never had to they have never just like a muscle it can only grow if it has something to push against mm -hmm. so put more women in those positions of power and suddenly the mediocre white men next to those women go oh my god wait I need to now level up I'm going to grow, I'm going to be better. I'm gonna push against something because now I have competition and I wanna be as good and I wanna be better. Okay, fine. So now you're gonna, you're gonna elevate yourself. So suddenly you get to, all the men get to grow as well because there are some, there, there are a lot of men coasting through this life because they have never had to challenge themselves or step up to the plate because they can just get away with it because this society builds it that way for them. And that is a disservice to them. I'm just that yeah I, I that needed to have a pause because I need you all to digest what has just been given to us we're talking about religion that was a sermon ministry <laughs> all of it so as we come to conclusion on this conversation I normally like to ask authors um, a bookstore that they would like our audience to buy um, their book from be even though you are in the UK, are there any US bookstores that you know of or just a, a platform that you would like for us to buy our book, the book from? Do you know what? I did an event last night with loyalty bookstores yes. in Washington, D.C., which is queer intersectional feminist bookstore. Yes. Um, and they were marvelous. And I love them. And I am always uh, gunning for the economy of sisterhood and putting money in women's pockets so also if you can buy my book from uh, female founded bookstores yes. I would love you to do that if you have a local female founded bookstore or one that's not so local that you can order from right. do that because I try to live my life in the economy of sisterhood which means paying women hiring women giving services to women if I can put money if I can put dollars in women's pockets that's what I will always do 
I think the economy of sisterhood is the title of this episode. So thank you. You gave me one last task to do. There you go. And do you know what? That was coined to me by um, an incredible poet called Lisa Lux. And she has this phenomenal poem all about the economy of sisterhood. And I wanted to just take that moment there to honor her and attribute that, that, um, that phrase to her because she has taught me in the same way, like I said before, women, making me better she has made me better and she has taught me so much about the economy of sisterhood which is now a practice that I live my life so 100% you should check out her poem about it it's phenomenal and then put some money in some women's pockets yes (laughs) and is there an organization that you would like to amplify that is important to you um and I think right now given the current climate in the U.S. I think what's really important to me is organizations charities that are helping women access abortions or Planned Parenthood, that kind of thing, because that's under threat Mm -hmm. and it's devastating. And if you read the book, you will know why this is so important to me as well. Um, And I want, so any organization uh, helping women get that life-saving procedure, I, you know, I'm 100% behind that. Selma Al Wardani, thank you for joining us and for your <laughs> prolific words um, on Feminist Podcast and for joining us to talk about these impossible things. Thank you for having me. It's been so lovely. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a dangerous creature.